We are a community that loves like Jesus. And my hope and my prayer is that this would be a transformative space for you. We're continuing our sermon series called The Best Stories Ever. And today's sermon is titled, The End of All Things, Including This Sermon Series. You heard me right. We are concluding the sermon series today. And it has been quite a journey to be on with you. And I am so thankful. I'm thankful today that we get to be in the book of Revelation, one of my favorite books of the Bible, particularly in chapter 19 and 20. So if you have a Bible, open up to chapters, chapter 19, and we'll start there. Now, some of you listened to the video that covered the first half of Revelation through chapter 11. And this was to give you an overview of the beginning, but also an overview of the generalities of the entire book. The overview of the end, chapters 12 through 22, is coming up after I give this message. So stay tuned. After we do communion, you'll listen to another video. So a quick note on Revelation. Like you learned in the video, it's pronounced Revelation and not Revelations. It's an apocalyptic literature piece meaning it's a prophetic book and an unveiling of things that have not yet been unveiled before at the time that this letter is written to the churches. So the book of Revelation, I believe, unfortunately has been misinterpreted for centuries. People have read too much into it. Remember, it's a letter and people were supposed to understand it at the time. So everything in the book would have been understood by the people reading it since it's a letter to the church. It's in a sense written in a style that would be understood by the Christians, yet not understood by, let's say, the Roman government. Let me give you an example of this. So the number, and many of you have heard, the mark of the beast, the number 666. Well, in Hebrew language and the numbered letters of Hebrew, if you interpret 666, it's translated Neron Kazar, which is the name Caesar Nero. It does not translate and identify any current or former leader like a pope or some mystery person as a part of a cult. It's not a former president like Donald Trump or the deceased President Reagan or our current President Biden or even Mussolini. All these names literally have been attached to 666 as some emerging antichrist figure. It's very strange to me why this is done because 666 literally means Caesar Nero. So why have Christians done wild things with the book? I really have no clue besides fantasy and hype and hyper-spiritualism sells. People believe it and false prophets are out there. There's false teachers out there everywhere. Yet excluding all of that, I believe the book of Revelation has something very beautiful to teach us, something beautiful about life, something beautiful about the church, and something amazing and glorious about heaven coming down to earth for eternity in the end. So in Revelation, we have two different scenes, just to get into it, that are a series of cyclical visions through the book. One scene is on earth, and it's pretty bloody. And another scene is in heaven, and it's very glorious. So here in chapter 19 and in chapter 20, we have a description of Jesus or a portrait of Jesus, and then the response of the people to Jesus. 
There's a description of the end of time and then there's a feast in the end. Everything ends with good food because food is good. And so that's the summary of what we're going, uh, going through today. But if you spend some time reading the book, and I wanna encourage you to find time to read all the chapters and just sift through and do some research, you'll find that in the end of Revelation, all things come to an end, including sin and sinful places of humans. They've been destroyed, but then many things begin. And that's the song of victory that's sung to God, giving praises to his name for all of eternity. So these heavenly voices bring the cycle of visions to a climactic conclusion with this like cascade of praises to God. So first we see a vast crowd that gives praises to God with hallelujah. And then a response is given as amen or so be it. So those of you who have, have heard Handel's Messiah, Friedrich Handel's Messiah is that, that wonderful chorus that many of us have gone to in person. That's just a choir, and it's a beautiful, magnificent, big image of the saints in heaven singing hallelujah to God. So if you can imagine what the heavenly voices are going to sound like. So through this Best Stories Ever series, we have walked through what I would deem some of the most important stories in, in Scripture. First, there are stories about creation and how God called us beautiful, which is translated perfect. And we see the struggle then in between, right? The two trees in between the trees. We see the struggle of human beings getting along. We figure out a relationship with God, and then we see a struggle with God. And then we see fighting, and we see reconciliation. And then we see Jesus as the Messiah. We see the church, and then now the church in a struggle fighting and getting along and reconciliation and, and relationships. And then now all things reverting back to that original intent of creation that where God called us beautiful, he sets in place then a new Eden moving forward, which is eternity. So now some of the interpretation I'm just gonna give you for time's sake, but there's lots of rich ideas and metaphors and pictures that you can do your own reading and research, especially in chapter 19, 20, 21, and 22. So Revelation 19 goes like this. It's the song of victory in heaven. After this, I heard what sounded like a huge crowd in heaven. They said, hallelujah, the salvation and glory and, glory and power of God, of our God. His judgments are true and just because he judged the great prostitute who ruined the earth by her whoring and he exacted the penalty for the blood of his servants from her hand. Then they said a second time, hallelujah. Smoke goes up from, from her forever and always. So we see right here, and this is the picture, that sin is eradicated from the earth and all that is in it because the wrath basically has disappeared. So the harlot was responsible for corrupting the earth and shedding the blood of the saints. And the harlot has been eradicated. As you read the whole book, you'll see how that picture and that metaphor comes to a close. Well, in verse four, it says this, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne and they said, amen, hallelujah. So now we see 24 elders and four living creatures and it gets a little weirder. Well, the four living creatures represent faith and all that is wise, all that is strong, courageous and swift they sing out and they cry out to God, hallelujah. 
So then a voice went out from the throne and said, Praise our God, all his servants, and you who fear him, both small and great. So then we see the voices intensify. They get greater in verse 6. And I heard something that sounded like a huge crowd, like rushing water and powerful thunder. They said, Hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty, exercised his royal power. Let us rejoice and celebrate and give him the glory for the wedding day of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. She was given fine, pure white linen to wear for the fine linen is the saint's acts of justice. So here's a very specific piece that I want you to keep in mind when reading the book of Revelation. It's things like this that bring life to the book, that brings a reality to the book that you don't need to really read into. You just need to, need, need, just, just need to need, know the historical specifics of such things like fine linen. Fine linen, especially white fine linen, represents the good, goodness or the good deeds in this case, done by the people of God. So every time you read the metaphor of fine linen, that represents something good. Good deeds or good works done by people. So along with the praises, the festival choir announces that the marriage feast of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. So Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and, and then in the New Testament, Colossians and Ephesians and John, God is the husband and the people are his bride. So the bride is the, the church, the, the new Jerusalem, we'll see it called. And in the last chapter of Revelation, the groom we see is Jesus. And in contrast, the, the church basically being the bride and Babylon being the harlot or the deceiver, that is in basically contrast, just as the lamb contrasts the beast. So the great prostitute basically was the visual way of depicting immorality. That's the negative sense. And the bride is the picture in the positive sense. And so the hope that John was having in writing this book is that people would identify with the bride more than the prostitute. And the bride and the prostitute are relational images. So in Re Revelation 18, the harlot and her city have no reason to celebrate. So there's no reason to join with the prostitute, but those that belong to the bride have reason to celebrate with marriage feasts and the lamb. So the bride calls people to the way of righteousness. The bride, basically the church, is ready but we will not see the groom with the bride until time has passed as we see in Revelation 20. So in verse nine, then the angel said to me, write this, favored are those who have been invited to the wedding banquet of the lamb. He said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet and, and wor to worship him. But he said, don't do that. I'm, I'm a servant just like you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the witness of Jesus. Worship God. The witnesses of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the people of the church are the blessed and the holy ones that will participate in the feast of the lamb. They worship God, so, so they turn away from unbelief 
to believe. So obviously there is an evangelistic message here in the book of Revelation to motivate people who do not believe into believing. They see what will happen in the end if they don't believe in the bigger picture of all things and they see the wrath of God and they don't want that end and they don't want that wrath. They want to see eternity and gloriousness in the end. They want the, the bride. They want the, the groom and the bride scene versus the harlot and the destruction scene. So authentic prophecy is known by what it does. True prophecy moves people to worship the Lord. False prophecy draws people away from the Lord, usually to a person or an iconic idea or individual. The true prophets in John's vision, the true prophecy in John's vision are not to offer predictions of future events, but to call people to a person, and that is Jesus. So when Revelation moves people to faith in God and the Lamb, it brings them to the end and its purpose for which the book was written. It's written to motivate people to strengthen their faith and to motivate people to have faith. So the essence of prophecy is to give witness to Jesus, and therefore we now see this picture of Jesus in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, its rider was called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war justly. His eyes were like a fiery flame, which means God's not happy. So when your eyes get like fiery flame, you're not happy either. And on his head were many royal crowns, so God will rule for all time in eternity. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. So God alone has the power and the authority and can call upon that name. He can call upon that power and authority, no one else, only him. So in verse 13, he wore a robe dyed with blood. So we see the victory and the cross, the, the burial and the resurrection, that whole passion scene, that, that robe is dyed with that blood. And his name was called the Word of God. Heaven's armies wearing fine linen, there we see that fine linen that was white and pure, were following him on white horses as well. So they don't need armor. They don't need this huge armor around them. They already are victorious. This is like a ride of victory, the sign of victory. The white horses, they're, they're triumphant, they're faithful, they're true. And from his mouth, in verse 15, comes this sharp sword that he will use to strike down the nations. And so this is the word of God. And as a double-edged sword, the word of God is like the double-edged sword we see coming from his mouth. These are the words of God as we see in, as Hebrews 4 explains. So he is the one who will rule them with the iron rod. And he is the one who will trample the winepress of the almighty God's passionate anger. He has a name written on his robe on his th and also on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. So all the victory... All the power, all the might, all the hallelujah, all the amens, all the victory. At this point in verse 16, we see that belongs to Jesus. So this is a depiction of Jesus that's kind of the counter type to some of the gospel depictions of Jesus we see in other places. This is the victor type of Jesus. This is the warrior type of Jesus versus the provider Jesus like feeding the 5,000. And so Jesus is our savior. 
He is our provider, and Jesus also is our victor. He has victory as, as well. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the ruler over his kingdom. So in chapter 19, the beast and the false prophets are then conquered, and we see that sin is eradicated, evil is eradicated, and Satan is put in his place. So those of you who have never heard that before or have never read that before, maybe that, that was like, wow, that's actually in the Bible. Yes, it's apocalyptic literature and it's written in a way that the, those people of the churches of, of Asia, those people would have known, they would have read it, they would have understood it, but that faith and that, that depiction, that portrayal of Jesus, that would have come to life to them. They would have seen that when, wow, this king is, is bigger than, than this king, this, this earthly king. This heavenly kingdom is bigger than this earthly kingdom. I want a part of this kingdom versus this earthly kingdom. I want a heavenly kingdom. So let's get into chapter 20. So chapter 20 is it, it just gets pretty wild. And I'm going to read it for you, but it is just an amazing story with lots of metaphor, lots of poetry, lots of symbolism. So I'm just going to read the whole thing, and I want you to be patient with it because we're going to walk through it here in a few minutes. So then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the abyss and a huge chain. He seized the dragon, the old snake, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, then locked and sealed it over him. This was to keep him from continuing to deceive the nations until the thousand years were over. After this, he must be released for a little while. So then I saw thrones and people took their seats on them and judgment was given in their favor. They were the ones who had been beheaded for their witnesses to Jesus and God's word and those who hadn't worshiped the beast or its image who hadn't received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and ruled with Christ for 1,000 years. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were over. This is the first resurrection. Favored and holy are those who have, have a share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will rule with him for 1,000 years. In verse seven, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. He will gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the whole earth and surrounded the saints' camp, the city that God loves. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets also were. Their painful suffering will be inflicted upon them day and night forever and always. And in verse 11, then I saw a great throne and the one who is seated on it before his face, both earth and heaven before his face, both earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. 
I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and scrolls were open. Another scroll was opened too. This is the scroll of life. And the dead were judged on the basis of what was written in the scrolls about what they had done. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and the grave gave up the dead that were in them. And people were judged by what they had done. The, the, then death and the grave were thrown into the fiery lake. This, the fiery lake, is the second death. Then anyone whose name wasn't found in the scroll of life was thrown into the fiery lake. Are you kidding me? What is that all about? I mean, that is like imagery that you don't see anywhere else in Scripture, and we're talking about the end of time. We're talking about something and is being written about that really is very hard to interpret and really nobody really knows all that it means. But here's a couple of ideas that I want to give you through this chapter 20 because this is the chapter in the book of Revelation that is, that is controversy, people fight over, and really there's nothing to fight over it because ultimately all things are going to end the way that God wants them to end. And all things are going to end in his timing as well. We can't predict the timing and we can't predict the how either. But the thousand years, just know that, that numbers in the Hebrew culture, the thousand years, that, that number, the numbers are symbolic. So three, seven, 12, 144,000, 1,000 years. All these numbers are very large metaphor pictures. They're symbolic of the age of time or a number of people. So 12, 12 tribes of Israel, a perfect number of people. Seven, seven days, God rested on the seventh. That's a perfect idea of creation or a perfect number. So you see a thousand years is an age of time where Satan is banished to the pit and the people group basically are given, this people group are given the blessing of righteousness without the threat of Satan. So let me read again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. This is 2021, or 21, verse 1. Holding in his hand the key to the abyss and a huge chain, he seized the dragon, the old snake, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, then locked and sealed it over him. This was to keep him from continuing to deceive the nations until the thousand years were over. So Satan is cast into this bottomless pit, an abyss. This was to keep him from continuing to deceive the nations until the thousand years were over. After this, he must be released for a little while. So then we see then another vision. And I want to read the American Standard Version because this is a little more crisp and a little more clear and a little more directly uh, directly translated from the original language. So I saw the thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them and the souls of them that had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and such as worshiped not the beast, neither his image and received not the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's the American Standard Version. So we're talking about the martyrs here. And one thing to keep in mind is that the martyr is the central figure in the book of Revelation. It's, it's the pinnacle figure of faith. So the martyr gave his life for the sake of Christ. They were beheaded. They were the ones that were tortured. They were the ones that persevered in faith through 
all that life at the time, life's persecutions were upon them. They're the symbolic representation of the faithful Christians with God. So we are talking about the martyr literally, yes, but also figuratively, we're talking about all faithful Christians. So sin is eradicated from the earth and symbolically for a period of time, this martyr reigns with God without the threat anymore of evil or Satan. The martyr, again, is the supreme symbol of loyalty to Christ. Enduring, meek, faithful, humble, obedient, loving people for the sake of Christ. So Revelation, you need to know, does not know a church that is at peace, always in turmoil, always in persecution. It only knows a church that's under threat. So the faithful, they die. They were, they were mass executions. And so the martyr is the central figure representing those of faith. So the passage of scripture doesn't revolve around some reign of Christ. Christ is already reigning. Christ is already on the throne. You don't have to worry about whether or not Christ is reigning. What this passage revolves around is our presence with Christ. It's whether or not we are joined with Christ. So they came to life and ruled with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were over. This is the first resurrection. This has to do with the community of, of people that are, are we with Christ or not with Christ? And so like all the numbers in Revelation, the thousand years is, a symbolic, is symbolic of a time spent with God. And so for a time in history, all those that believe in Christ and are finally with him will reign with Christ without the threat of the devil. So as I read the Bible and the rest of the Bible, I can conclude that the devil, according to the Bible, has no power over us now in Christ. And this could be interpreted as the age of the church from Pentecost forward. We have the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit in us. We're called priests, we're called holy, we're called favored. All these words that were listed in Revelation 20, we're called all of this in this age now. So this thousand years, in my interpretation, would be as we are with Christ now, or if we die, we're at home with the Lord, we're with Christ, reigning now in his kingdom. So no one really has a handle on this scripture because the thousand years in, Hebrews number, in the Hebrew number is an infinite amount of time in which there is a reign and then there is an end. And I think the simple version and interpretation should always be taken because John wanted the people to understand his writing. There was nothing hidden in this writing. And so when God feels like it's the time and the final and the end of all time, it will occur. When God wants it to happen, it will occur. So then there's this final judgment. When God declares it, then it happens. Then I saw a great white throne and the one who was seated on it before his face, both earth and heaven uh, fled away and no place was found for them. I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne and scrolls were opened. Another scroll was opened too and this scroll was the scroll of life. And the dead were judged on the basis of what was written in the scrolls about what they had done. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and the death and the grave gave up the dead that were in them as well. And people were judged by what they had done. Verse 14, then death and the grave so these ideas of death and this idea of the grave, 
they were sealed in the fiery lake. They were put away too. So no longer are we under this idea of death. No longer are we going to die. This is the fiery lake. This is the second death. This is to put it away forever. Then anyone whose name wasn't found in the scroll of life was thrown in the fiery lake as well. So the faithful are being continually resurrected through time. You are absent from the body. You're at home with the Lord. Again, we see that in Scripture. You're reigning with Christ for a period of time, and when the rest uh, to be resurrected, that is according to Scripture. That's going to happen, and then we're all standing before God, and those that do not believe are cast into the abyss that, uh, that the Scripture tells us. So what does this all mean? Well, at best confusing, yeah, can be. But in simple form, in a simple look, it's a call to faithfulness. It's not a call to figure out when Christ is going to return. This is for God to determine. It's a call to persevere. And in the end, those that persevere will stand before God and the heavenly voices will be singing. They'll be singing praise. This is an evangelistic message to turn our life, to repent from an earthly kingdom and to take on and to join a heavenly kingdom. And so to show that John wrote this apocalyptic literature to show that this is the end and who do you want to join? Do you want to become this earthly kingdom and and that's what you belong to? Or do you want a heavenly kingdom with a victor in Jesus and and good deeds shown, and people giving praise to God for eternity. That's what John wanted to explain. That's what he wanted to convince people that was going to happen and for them to join that kingdom. And that's what makes this story the best story ever. And actually, from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22-21, that's what makes this entire story the Bible the best stories ever. Let's take communion together. When we take communion, we say, thanks be to God. And Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the very last chapter of Revelation, the very last sentence, the very last word, it says this, the grace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And the word amen means so be it. And so from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation, so be it. So be it, God, that you are the victor, you are the provider, you are the sustainer, you are the savior of the world. The end will come and your promise of the return is sure. And we say when that happens, how that happens, God, so be it, amen. And because of, the, because of the crucifixion, we have eternal life as promised and shown today. Father, thank you for Lord, the opportunity to walk through Lord, the entire Bible and just walk through these important stories. Lord, help us to be faithful, to persevere. Lord, help us to Lord, grow in character like some of your stories have told us. Help us to grow in our faith as some of your stories have told us. Help us to look heavenly, heavenward, Lord, towards heaven. Lord, with our eyes lifted up. Lord, not for the earthly things, but for the heavenly things as some of your stories have told us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. 
Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the ascension. And thank you for the promise that you will come again, that you will return, and we will all sing hallelujah. Praise be to God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.